Welcome to the Faculty New Books podcast, covering the latest authors and publications from across the subject spectrum. So, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, the European continent faced a humanitarian crisis of an enormous scale. Millions had been displaced from their homes either during the war by the Nazis, or as forced laborers, or as grist for the system of extermination and concentration camps, or by the events of war driven from their homes by the war's devastation, or by events of the final months of war as the eastern part of the continent was liberated by the USSR. And these refugees were scattered across the continent from one end to the other, as well as around the globe. Perhaps the largest portion of those, however, ended up in what was left of Germany. So it's important to remember that with the defeat of the Nazi regime, the Third Reich collapsed, which left Germany without a native government. And instead, the country had been divided up into four different occupation zones, French, Soviet, British, and American, each of which was governed by an occupation military government until at least the four, until the four allies figured out what they wanted to do with the country and could restore democratic government there. This mammoth refugee population didn't come as a surprise to the allied forces or governments. It had been anticipated as early as 1943, an international agency had been established expressly to deal with at least one segment of this massive population known as the displaced persons. And that organization was the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration or UNRWA. Now the definition of displaced person was very specific and in a sense rather narrow. This was civilians who were outside the national boundaries of their country by reason of war, who wanted to return home or find homes, but were unable to do so without assistance, or for whom a return home would be to return them to what was now enemy territory. Importantly, these people were not German. The agencies set up to deal with these displaced persons were forbidden from assisting Germans, either German citizens or ethnic Germans. So they were of almost every other nationality, but they were not German. In the summer of 1945, millions of these displaced persons returned home voluntarily and largely under their own steam. However, after the dust settled, there remained some 600 to 700,000 displaced persons in the three western zones of Germany who would not or could not return home. Most were located in the American occupation zone, the focus of my particular project. Um, It's because it's important to note that the DPs were handled very differently in the various zones. And the American occupation authorities were a bit flummoxed by the displaced person's reluctance to go home. They hadn't really anticipated this. While UNRWA realized pretty quickly that this population was going to be a relatively long-term problem, the occupation authorities remained convinced that these DPs would all be gone in a matter of months. Neither of them, however, anticipated the challenges that would be posed by one particular subset in this population, a group that would come to be called unaccompanied children. These were children who had been orphaned or separated from their families by events of war. By definition, then, they were minors without legal guardians, and they ranged in age from babes in arms to teenagers and were of every nationality, although preponderantly East European, and they were both Jewish and Gentile. So among those hundreds of thousands of of displaced persons, we find some 30 to 40,000 of such children, and they are the focus of my project. The core problem facing the various entities that were responsible for the care and disposition of these children was this. What were they going to do with them, and who would make that decision? Because it's important to note, first, that these children could not speak for themselves. These were legally minors without legal guardians, remember. So not only did they have no say in the determination of their disposition, to use the language of the time, 
but they had no one to speak for them or to protect their interests. Second, it's also important to note that these children's nationality was generally uncertain or unknown. Most were children of forced laborers brought to Germany during the war to work in German factories or, German, or on German farms. The children were brought to Germany with their parents, or in fact, many of them actually born in Germany. So they've been born or raised in Germany then, separated from their, mother, their mothers for a variety of reasons, means, which means these children spoke only German and they remembered very little, if anything, of their birth families. Others among the unaccompanied children had been removed from their families in Eastern Europe by the Nazis and brought to Germany as a part of the Nazis' plan to build the Aryan race. They were then placed in German homes or foster homes to be Germanized. The book's purpose is to explore the debates that erupted around the question of what was to be done with these children. It argues that central to these debates was the key question of nationality, how it's to be determined and which nationalities were considered legitimate and which were not. Matters were made much more complicated by the plethora of agencies that were involved in the children's care, none of whom were willing or able to assume the role of legal guardian, but each of which came to the table with their own understanding of what was they considered to be in the children's best interests. Remember that this story unfolds in the context of the collapse of the Nazi regime and the gradual emergence of a new West German democratic government. Those are our bookends, if you will, to the story. In between those two endpoints, the, the American zone was governed by no less than three iterations of an occupation government. First, Schaeff, the supreme headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Forces, followed by joint governments, governance by AMGUS, AMGUS the occupation military government of the US, and USFET, the US Forces European Theater, followed finally by Heikop, the US High Commissioner of Germany. It was a true alphabet soup. And for a critical middle stretch of this story, we have two competing American military operations sharing responsibility for the zone. In addition, we had not one, but two international agencies responsible for the displaced person's daily care. UNRWA, which lasted until middle of 1947, and then was replaced by the IRO or the International Refugee Organization, which lasted until 1952. As well, there was a myriad of smaller public and private NGOs, including the Jewish Agency for Palestine, which assumed responsibility for the Jewish displaced persons. And finally, there was the nascent German government, represented in this matter by the Youth Welfare Office, or the Jugendamt, which had its own set of interests it sought to protect. None of these entities were willing or able to assume the role of guardian, either because it was not within their mandate or because they were too short-lived and planned to be too short-lived, so unable to provide the long-term support the children needed. Even while they all remained involved in the children's care and the decisions around the children's ultimate disposition. At its core, this book explores the debates that erupted as these entities debated the children's ultimate disposition, to use the word of the time. UNRWA and then the IRO were the organizations charged with caring for the children on a daily basis. UNRWA's mandate beyond daily care was to locate and identify these children, reunite them with their families if possible, and if not, then to repatriate them to their homeland. This was in keeping with the social welfare principles that dominated the professional social work in the US at the time and considered to be the best practice. 
It was believed that the, this was the best way to ensure the child's physical security, that is their physical and health and well-being, and their emotional security, their psychological and emotional health and well-being. That it was best for a child to be raised in the bosom of a loving family, ideally by its mother, rather than in an institution, no matter how good the children's home. So finding the children was difficult enough, but once found, the challenges mounted. There was, so there were several levels of challenge. First, there were the very practical problems in trying to find and identify these children. The lack of resources nearly stopped UNRWA's operations before they began, and the operations were severely hampered throughout um, its and the IRO's existence by a chronic shortage of basic supplies like papers, pens, typewriters, billets, office space, as well as chronic shortages of personnel and of functioning transportation. Once located, the practical challenges trying to identify many of these children, especially the youngest, was daunting. These children had few, if any, identification documents. Many had been born or raised in Germany, remember, so they only spoke German and they knew very little about their families. So trying to determine their identity, even their nationality, was a very tricky, imprecise, and time-consuming exercise. Second, there were a number of legal problems and, or issues that threatened to derail the child search operations. Key was a fraught debate over nationality, as I mentioned. Which nationalities would be recognized as legitimate and who would make the final determination of a child's nationality? For children with adult relatives, their nationality was fairly easily determined. They take the nationality of one or both of their parents, depending on whether the child was legitimate, illegitimate, whether one parent was German, among other factors. But with no adult relatives, first determining a child's nationality was much more challenging as there was no reference to turn to. But it also raised the question of who got to determine a child's nationality in the end. UNRWA and the IRO did their level best to figure out what each child's nationality was, often taking years to investigate a child's past, trying to trace relatives and the child's history across the face of Europe. Eventually in most, but not all, in most cases, they could make a reasonable guess. However, neither organization felt comfortable in being the one to say that definitively that this child was indeed, for example, Polish. Who were they to tell Poland that this child was Polish and therefore Poland's responsibility? That should be Poland's decision, they argued. Which leads to a second crucial legal issue, that of guardianship. These are legal, legal minors, so unable to make decisions for themselves, but who gets to make those decisions? The alternative was not obvious. The default became the national liaison officer, as each national government with nationals in Germany had representatives in Germany to provide support, visa and repatriation information and so on. This person, the liaison officer, became the arbiter of a child's nationality by having the final say as to whether a child was of their nationality or not. So, the Polish liaison officer was the person who decided whether a child was indeed Polish or not. However, a number of children didn't have a national liaison officer. Baltic children, for example, did not. The Baltic republics of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia had been occupied by the USSR in 1939, at the same time it had invaded Poland. And the USSR argued that all citizens of the Baltic republics were therefore Soviet citizens. The U.S. refused to recognize the Soviet claim to the Baltic Republic, so they didn't recognize the Baltic DPs as Soviet citizens. But the U.S. also hadn't recognized Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania as independent states, so they had no formal diplomatic status. 
and therefore no liaison officers. So the Soviet liaison officers argued that they represented all Latvians, Lithuanians, and Estonians. And the Americans, refusing to recognize that claim, would not let the Soviet liaison officers speak to the Baltics unless a Baltic DP explicitly chose to be considered a Soviet citizen. Ukrainian was another issue. The Ukrainian displaced persons loudly argued that they were not Soviet or Polish, but Ukrainian. But Ukrainian was not acknowledged as a legitimate nationality category, and so they were caught in limbo without a liaison officer because the Americans also refused to foist the Soviet liaison officers on them. And what did you do if the liaison officer decided that the child was not, for example, Polish? in spite of all of the evidence that the UNRWA welfare officer collected that suggested that the child was indeed Polish. And indeed, a number of children rejected it, were rejected by their putative liaison officer as not of that nationality. And the UNRWA welfare officer couldn't just decide that this child was instead French, for example. And then what about the children for whom there was just not enough information? They were left as undetermined because the evidence was inadequate and a definitive determination couldn't be made. Other legal issues plagued child search and child welfare. Could a child be adopted? If so, by whom? And how do you ensure that the adoption was legal given the enormous disparity in adoption laws between states? This was important if, for example, a Pole adopted a Baltic child or an American adopted a Polish child. Fundamental to this was UNRWA's growing concern over the children's legal security both in the moment and in the future, especially when the child reached adulthood and became responsible for itself. They needed to ensure that that child, when that transition occurred, had the rights of a full citizen somewhere. This was as important as their physical and emotional well-being. So we've seen practical challenges and legal challenges facing the welfare workers just trying to figure out what to do with these children, which made this a very complicated and time-consuming task. On the other hand, the primary objective of OMGAS, the American military occupation government, was to resolve the displaced persons problem as quickly as possible. OMGAS became increasingly impatient as the crisis dragged on. They were concerned about the cost of maintaining these remaining DPs, who seemed to have settled into the camps permanently with little sense they were planning on moving on anytime soon. They were growing frustrated with the displaced persons' refusal to integrate into German society, and from their perspective, assume responsibility for themselves and their future at the US government's expense note as it was paying for the camps. And the Americans were also quite preoccupied with the vastly large number of German expellees flooding into Germany at this time. People of Germanic extraction who were being summarily kicked out of various East European countries because they were deemed Germanic and were no longer welcome there. So although the American military initially had been supportive of the idea of searching for the children, it quickly became concerned, especially as the number of children whose nationality could not be definitively determined grew, because it feared that these children would turn into a long-term liability because they didn't know exactly what they could do with them. Omgus, or at least elements in it, worked hard to shut down the child search operations beginning in mid-1946, arguing that as long as a child was healthy, happy, and well cared for, they should be left where they were. And Amgus made good use of a groundswell of opposition from the German population and from the German Jugendamt, or Youth Welfare Office, over the removal of children from German homes and institutions. Instead, 
Angus proposed that these children should be, to use their, their term, presumed to be German to the horror of UNRWA. And from this point forward, it was a low-grade war between child search and the occupation government. And this would last until the last child was established in 1952. Yet another layer of complication was that of international politics. Most of the unaccompanied children were from Eastern Europe. That much was clear. As the Cold War hardened, and on the ground in Germany, that was beginning as early as late 1945, early 1946, tensions over the disposition of these children grew. From the beginning, the governments in Eastern Europe were insistent that they wanted their children back. And they pressed UNRWA to find their children, remove them from German institutions and homes as quickly as possible, and ship them home. To do otherwise was unacceptable. It would have meant that Germany had really won the war by keeping their children their future labor force. At the same time, the American military authorities became increasingly reluctant to allow the children to be repatriated, arguing that one should leave the children in Germany if they were well taken care of, rather than uprooting them and condemning them, to use their words, to the communist bloc, as they saw it. Second, a second source of mounting tension was that in a growing number of instances, the children refused to repatriate, and UNRWA, the IRO, and the American authorities refused to force them to do so. Meanwhile, the liaison officers just as adamantly refused to consider an alternative solution like resettling in another country. And remember, it was the national liaison officers who, as the children's punitive guardians, had final approval on all decisions made about a child's identity and its disposition. This gave them considerable power, and they almost uniformly insisted on repatriation and repatriation only. And so the children could sit in the camps or children's centers, sometimes for years, in limbo, pawns in the emerging Cold War. Underlying all of this, therefore, was the thorny problem of the determination of a child's nationality. It was crucial because this dictated who would get to speak for the child and where the child would ultimately settle. It would determine not just their immediate disposition, but also their future legal status as an adult. And one of the revelations of this study is how clear and misunderstood the concept of nationality was at this time, how malleable and politicized it was, and how citizenship and nationality were often conflated. There are several lessons to be drawn from this story, of which I'll highlight three. One is that these children were considered a valuable form of social capital or national property by everyone involved. They were a valuable commodity to the various powers and agencies involved, at least in principle, at least as some children were not desired. For the national governments who wanted their children back, they were the future labor force. These children regard, were regarded as the various national governments' collective property, a useful turn of phrase that was first coined by Tara Zara. They had value to the state as the future labor force. They also had immense value for the various ethnic minorities in Central Europe who were fighting to establish the legitimacy of their particular national identity. Think especially of the Ukrainians. If the Ukrainians could force or persuade the American military authorities to recognize Ukrainian children as not Soviet citizens, then they were one big step towards the recognition of Ukrainian as a legitimate national identity. For the American military authorities, they were useful pawns in the emerging Cold War, just as they were for the Eastern Bloc countries, used by both sides 
in a propaganda war against one another. So while arguing that they were all acting in the children's best interests, in reality, each camp's proposed solution was in its own best interests and not necessarily the children's. Their proposed solutions, be it repatriation, resettlement, or dispersal among the German population, suited their needs, not necessarily the children's. Second, I think UNRWA and the IRO had the right of it. It was not, is not enough to work to give such children physical and emotional security in the form of a roof over their head, food in their bellies, medical care, in terms of being kept safe and secure and placed in an environment that provided them with emotional st stability. It was and is also about legal security. At its most basic, the heart of the problem for these children is that they did not have, a, have citizenship in some country, either because their putative homeland rejected them, or because they rejected their putative homeland, or because their nationality was unclear or unknown. Lack of citizenship means you don't have a government to protect you, to speak for you. This is difficult enough for adults who find themselves in this situation, but for minors who cannot speak for themselves, you must therefore have an advocate, this is disastrous. Not just while they're minors and therefore have no legal guard and with no legal guardians, but also when they become adults and age out of the child welfare system, which offered at least some form of basic protection. Without citizenship at that point, they were in limbo, legally non-persons. And this is why UNRWA and then the IRO fought so hard to place all of the children in order to get them citizenship. Third, nationality was clearly a very pliable term at this, at, at very pliable term at this time. Being mobilized, it was a term being mobilized, I'm gonna start order. Third, nationality was clearly a very pliable term at this time. Being mobilized for a variety of purposes, few of which had to do with ethnicity. Nationality instead had become a weapon in the war between East and West, to be recognized or not, as suited the needs of the government doing the recognizing. In the end, no ethnicity that did not dovetail neatly with some recognized citizenship status was formally recognized, with the exception of Jewish. Ultimately, nationality came to be equated with citizenship not just by UNRWA and the IRO, but by all involved, Americans, Germans, East European bloc, the Soviet Union, and so on. But for children of certain nationalities for whom the alternatives were politically unpalatable, either for the child or the national government involved, and for children for whom national, their nationality could just not be determined for lack of evidence, nationality became a problem, not a solution. There's a key lesson we can learn and carry forward into the present day from this particular story, as we deal with the sea of refugees moving across the face of the globe. That lesson is this. We must recognize how incredibly difficult it is for an, individ an individual to find their family once separated. It only takes a moment and lives are altered fundamentally, torn apart and fundamentally reshaped. It's crucial that we understand the, concession, the consequences of the choices being made when playing with these people's lives, too often using them as pawns in a bigger game. Crucial not just for them, but for those left to sort out the mess in the aftermath of whatever crisis caused a particular exodus in the first place. Mm -hmm.